find a screen if you would. I'd like you to stand with me please this morning. And let's look to God's Word in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. This is our key text, our series text from the series On His Mark from the Gospel of Mark. So find one. Let's read out loud together. Here we go. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away His life in exchange for many who are held hostage. Jesus, we are overwhelmed this morning at that reminder what we just took in the juice and the bread your shed blood, your broken body for us, that you, you didn't, just, didn't just pay the ransom money, but you became the ransom for us. Those of us that were held in hostage, in bondages of all kinds, thank you that you've set us free, that you paid the price. Holy Spirit, open hearts today, open eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, I'm not a good enough preacher to do that. I don't ever claim to be. I know that I desperately need you. Do what only you can do in this place, Holy Spirit, to change a life, to revolutionize, Lord, someone's thinking, to renew their minds, Father, to, to see you high and lifted up in a way they've never seen you before. And Lord, for liberty, for the, for the spirit of liberty to reign in this place. The Bible says where the Spirit is Lord, where the, where the Spirit is Lord, there is liberty. You reign in this place. Be Lord in this place, Holy Spirit, we pray. We ask you for that in the name of Jesus. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and all of God's people said. You may be seated this morning in His presence. Amen. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, back into it now for, I guess this is our third week since we had uh, sort of split off from uh, December and January for our Advent series and for our uh, beginning of the year, sort of kicking the year off. So we're back in really good. We're, we're, we're connected, knowing what's going on. We've, from the beginning, been emphasizing the distinction between religion and the gospel. Religion is about advice. The gospel is, is a factual statement of what's already taken place. It's done. The difference in religion is do, and the gospel is done. Jesus says it is finished. One of my friends from Oklahoma, uh, uh, Rocky and Kathy Walker, say it this way, if it ain't done, don't eat it. And that relates to understanding the finished work of Christ. Uh, in other words, if someone br brings you a gospel that it's not finished and there's still this something that you have to do to earn your way or deserve anything in God, then you realize they're not that they, that 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 roast didn't cook yet. It needs to be cooked. It needs to be done. It needs to be finished. Come on, look at your neighbor and say it is finished. It is finished. And so that's the principle that we go by. If it ain't done, don't eat it. So we really want to give you something here that's been completely finished. The finished work of Christ. Uh, we, as we launch into this this morning. Uh, we are looking at four passages that just flow through the scripture in Mark chapter 12. We are marching to March six, Mark 16. We'll be preaching that on Resurrection Sunday, April the 20th. And so we are uh, endeavoring to move through these passages uh, expeditiously, efficiently, uh, to bring the glory to the Lord, to keep Christ at the center of this, to keep it gospel-driven, to keep it grace-packed and empowered. And so this morning, it is with that that we begin in Mark chapter 12. I'll read out loud, just follow along with me on one of the screens. We're talking about the most important commandment. One of the religion scholars came up, hearing the lively exchanges of question and answer and seeing how sharp Jesus was in his answers, he put in his question, which is most important of all the commandments? Jesus said, the first in importance is, listen, Israel... The Lord your God is one. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. 
It's called the Shema. It is, it is the prayer that every faithful Hebrew prays. The Lord our God is one. So he goes on to say, and I'm reading from the message because I just love how it just totally expounds this thing and just sort of breaks it wide open for us to understand it. It says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one. So love the Lord God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and energy. Doesn't that sound fresh? Because every probably most of you who've grown up in church have heard all of your lives, Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And man, if you stop to ponder that, that's power packed. But it's so easy when we get very familiar with a passage, we just sort of go, ho-hum, well, I know this. I've already squeezed all the juice out of that grape that there is. I know all there is to know about that passage. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that's the reason I use a different translation sometimes, just to shock you. I mean, it's like just going through the A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, Pimento, Cheese, Q, R, S, T. You heard that, yeah. You're going, what did he just say? That's the way my wife learned to say the ABCs when she was growing up. Ella Pimento Cheese. Uh, and, and sometimes you have to hear something different to go, what? Uh, pimento Cheese would be real good about right now. But anyway, <laughs> the first importance is this. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one, so love the Lord your God with all your passion. Everybody say passion. Yes. Prayer. Intelligence and energy. So that's your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love that. And here is the second. Love others as well as you love yourself. Now some of your neighbors don't have a chance. Love others as well as you love yourself. You know, so much sin consciousness preaching almost develops a self-hatred among a lot of Christians. And this morning, we're not here to shine a light on us. It's all about Jesus. But the fact is we're not without Him. I acknowledge every Sunday. I do, it, I do it on purpose, and it's not a ritual for me. It's just me making the confession and saying one more time, apart from you, I know I can do nothing. I need you. I desperately need you, okay? But the truth is, I'm not apart from Him. He fills my heart. So I'm acknowledging that what happens today is all because of Him, that I'm not a good enough preacher. I can't get somebody saved. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's in spite of me sometimes that He does a work, and I'm shocked and I go, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Come on, somebody. And so we, we realized this morning that when we look at this passage, when we look and it's all about the love of God, I'm loving the new creation in me. The old me that's been buried in the waters of baptism that I'm putting off like a bad set of clothes and I'm putting on something new that's fresh and clean and pressed and it's, it's putting off the old life and putting on Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says, in every one, nearly every one of the epistles. Put on Christ. It's like taking off bad gar old garments that are stinky and smelly and getting clean, being washed by the water of the word and then putting a whole, on a whole new set of clothes. So I'm, I'm, I'm to learn to love what Christ is doing in my heart and out of that, love others as I love myself even. Okay, that's what the word says. There is no other commandment that ranks with these, Jesus says. This these two outweigh all of them, okay? Verse 32, the religion scholar said, A wonderful answer, teacher. Way to go, rabbi. Dude, you're on today. You're on point, Jesus. He says, so lucid and accurate that God is one and there is no other. And loving him with all passion and intelligence and energy and loving others as well as you love yourself. Why? That's better than all offerings and sacrifices put together. This guy's really kind of just in the amen corner for Jesus. When Jesus realized how insightful he was, he said, you're almost there, right on the border of God's kingdom. Now, that's, that's a powerful statement. I wish I could stop and really kind of just 
pull the train over into a little side chute over here and preach that for a while because I don't want to be on the border of the kingdom. I want to be slapped in the middle of it. I don't want to be on the edges of his ways, as it says in the book of Job, but I want to be right in the middle of his purpose. Come on, somebody. So Jesus is saying, man, you're there. Just keep heading in the same direction. You're on the border of this thing. After that, no one ask, dared ask a question. And so this morning, point number one, and we'll probably spend the bulk of our time on one, uh, because I want to unpack this a little bit, is that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love, say it with me, love is the fulfillment of the law. I'm thankful to God for the Ten Commandments. Uh, I have, I think that it was a grace gift that He gave them in the first place. Uh, it, it was to a people who were already redeemed. When we understand the Scripture covenantally, we look backward and we see that the children of Israel had already been bought by the blood, the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. They had been delivered from Egypt by the blood. They came through the water of the Red Sea, baptized into Moses, okay, in the sea and in the cloud. So it was in the water and it was in the Spirit. This repeats again in 1 Corinthians 10, and it's the picture of us being baptized into Christ in the water of baptism, bearing the old man, being raised in newness of life, and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes in and fills us, okay? So he, the, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, comes in and takes up His abode in us, and by His presence, we have the whole Trinity living on the inside of us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He says in John 14, Jesus says, I and my Father will come and take up our abode in you when He sends you another comforter, Okay? And so this morning, as, as we look at this, we remember that it was not a people trying to get saved by keeping the law, but it was a people who had already been saved. They were already in the covenant. They had already been marked by the blood, the water, and the Spirit. They were in the wilderness, and it was in the wilderness where God gave the law at Sinai. He, in, he intended for the whole nation of people to be set apart as a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19. Exodus 20 is when God gives the law. He writes it by His own finger into stone. Without giving you an extensive history lesson, let's remember it was a gift from God. Everybody say a gift from God. Now, there are a lot of folks these days who are part of what we would call a hyper-grace movement who completely just negate the law altogether because of what we've seen done with the law. And this is where I try to make a distinction. The law is not your enemy. It's legalism that is the problem. It's how you deal with the law. Okay. So I want you to see this morning that the Bible says the law of God is good and it's holy and it's spiritual. Romans 7, uh, chapter 7. Uh, uh, Was it Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The fear of the Lord is clean, enlightening the eyes. The statutes of the Lord are right and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now that's the rub right there. Apart from the Spirit of Christ in me, I cannot keep God's law. I am a covenant breaker. I desperately need a sacrifice to pay what can wash away my sin. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. So I need now as a new covenant person to understand how am I to relate to this thing called the law of God. Because there's some that dismiss it and basically just say, now because I'm in Christ, I can just sort of live willy-nilly. And grace basically is a great big permissive wet blanket 
that God just sort of covers you lumps and all and all of your mess and just sort of accepts you just like you are. And let me just tell you something right now. God does accept you just like you are, but He loves you too much to leave you in that condition. He will work on you. Help me, Ken. Yes, He will work on you. Understand this this morning. Every good Baptist in Crittenden County has been taught, rightly so, that grace is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. But let me submit to you with humility. That is only half the definition of grace. The other half of the definition of grace... Unmerited favor is right, but the other half is operational power. Everybody say operational power. Now because grace is on the inside of me, by the person of Christ, Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Come on somebody. Paul wrote to the Colossians and he says, You are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you hear that? You, the old you is dead. Now you're hidden with Christ in God. You're a new creation. You need to renew your mind, your thinking, your understanding. There's no way your neighbor has a chance. Because if it's all about the old you, there's nothing about that that you can love. Because he's an ugly, rotten, no good, stinking worm. But I'm not talking to a room full of worms this morning. I'm talking to a room full of butterflies that have been transformed. They used to be worms, but resurrection has come into your life. You've entered into a cocoon and it was spun into baptism and you laid down and you died and you came out and metamorphosed into a whole new life in Christ. I'm preaching some of your 10th grade biology lessons. You remember the caterpillar and the butterfly. That's a beautiful description of resurrection. That's the only way I can keep the law. The law now is a guide for me. I don't, I don't keep it to earn my salvation. I don't keep it to keep my salvation. But now by grace, I can walk in it and I can obey it. And let me tell you something. If you break it, there's still a consequence. Listen, there's a, you have to recognize that for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction in the universe. It's thing called the law of sowing and reaping. Paul wrote to the Galatians. He says, if you sow to your flesh corruption, you will reap death. If you sow to your spirit righteousness, you will reap everlasting life. You still reap what you sow. Come on, somebody. Understand that he is literally saying, if you love God, then you won't break the first four. You won't have another God before you. You won't worship idols. You won't take the name of God in vain. You will worship the Lord. You will remember the, the, the Sabbath principle. Okay? And that's not the religious, ardent, meticulous keeping of sundown Friday to sundown Saturday or even a Sunday morning worship service. It's just remembering that Jesus is your Sabbath. He is your rest that you have entered into. Come on, right there. That's the understanding, okay? And then the last six of those commandments, the second one sums it up. Love others as you love yourself. If you do that, you will fulfill the last six. Number five is honor your mother and father. That's the first relationship you have when you come into the world, that you're, you, you may live long on the earth. Okay, well, because now I'm under grace and quote as every good Baptist has heard, and I'm not against the Baptist at all, but this is very typical among even Baptists and Pentecostals to take that verse, I believe it's Romans 6.14, that we're not under law but under grace. And so I go, okay, well, now that you think we're not under law, and I think it's a, you have to unpack what that means under law, you say, well, it's no longer binding on us today. Does that mean you can kill somebody and get away with it? 
Of course not. Does that mean you can steal your neighbor's boat and get away with it? No. No, as a matter of fact, if you really have the grace of God working in you, you won't steal your neighbor's boat. If you really have the grace of God working in you, you won't lay down and commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. If you really have the grace of God working in you, you won't have to be reminded that you ought to go see your mom and daddy and love on a little bit because the grace of God reminds you to honor your mom and dad. That's the issue. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Listen, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. I'm reading from the message. Don't run up debts except for the huge debt of love that you owe each other. When you love others, you complete what the law has been after all along, what it couldn't do, okay? The law code, don't sleep with another person's spouse. Don't take someone's life. Don't take what isn't yours. Don't always be wanting what you don't have. And any other don't you can think of finally adds up to this. Love other people as well as you do yourself. You can't go wrong when you love others. When you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. What was it? Tina said, what's love got to do? This is what love has got to do with it right here. I'm sorry, that just kind of flew across. If you had any idea what I edit all the time, you would be, you would be grateful. <laughs> Galatians 5.14, I'm beginning at 13, it says it this way. It's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's Word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you'll be annihilating each other. And then where will your precious freedom be then? Okay. Law of God, do we keep it not to be saved? Do we keep it not to stay saved? Do we keep it because the grace of God is working on the inside of us? Yes. Come on, somebody give the Lord praise. Next one, Mark 12, verses 35 through 37. While he was teaching in the temple, Jesus asked, How is it that the religion scholars say that the Messiah is David's son? When we all know that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, God said to my master, sit here at my right hand until, everybody say until, until I put your enemies under your feet. David here designates the Messiah, my master, so how can the Messiah also be his son? The large crowd was delighted with what they heard. Let me just say, this is the most widely quoted Old Testament passage that appears in the New Testament. It's from Psalm 110, verse 1. If you read it in your King James, it would say, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Okay, um, It is a psalm of David, and it's a psalm of the kingdom. It's a psalm of the dominion of God. And if you look at it in the authorized, during the King James Version, it will say, The Lord, all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord said unto my Lord, capital O, lowercase o-r-d. So if you look at that in the King James, some, several different translations will do that, is because there were two different words for Lord or the names of God there. Yahweh said to Adonai. Okay, it's literally God the Father said to God the Son. Okay, 
God the sender, sender said to God the, the one on mission, to the Messiah. Okay? So the Lord, all caps, says to my Lord. So this is literally the Father saying to the Son, before time, in eternity, in eternity past, I'm literally, there will come a time, I'm going to send you, and then you're going to come back and arise and ascend and sit down. This is confirmed in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says that he has now been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, where now the Father says, sit here until I make all of these enemies your footstool. Jesus came, did the work at the cross, finished the work, but the book of Hebrews says we don't yet see all of these enemies under his feet, but we see Jesus. Okay, So I want you to recognize that in the middle of this, there are two things that I want to bring home. Number one, it is the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Now, this is where the cults miss it. Now, forgive me if I'm going back to basics for some of you that have walked with the Lord for a long time, but we've got all kinds of growth states and phases in this room. And as a, as a pastor who desires to be a good shepherd, I want to see that people are grounded in truth. The, the difference that, that the, what separates us from the cults, and, and I, don't want to be, um, I, I don't want to be mean in any kind of way, but we're talking about the Mormons, the Latter-day Saints, we're talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses, we're talking about Christian scientists. Uh, there is one of their beautiful church over there on Highland and uh, I believe it's uh, Central, right on near the University of Memphis campus, First Christian, First Church of Christ scientist. Okay, um, All of these emerged in the mid-1800s. And what separates Orthodox Christianity, ortho-right, doxa thinking, right thinking, what separates right Christian thinking, what is the established, understood standard of truth, we say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Trinity. You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but we understand that God is one in the Shema we just read, Hear, O Israel, for the Lord our God is one God, or He's one Lord. We understand that the Scripture gives us this differentiation in personalities. We have the Father speaking. As a matter of fact, in John 14, that every time that Jesus was baptized, I mean, I'm sorry, that, that Jesus was acknowledged in His Sonship at the baptism and then at the transfiguration. We have God speaking. We have the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And then we have the Son upon whom all of this recognition is being poured. So we have three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, all of those cult groups that I mentioned acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, but they just won't admit that He is God the Son. Do you see the difference? So I want you to understand that this God before time came down into humanity. He's so identified with the struggle that you and I have, that humanity has fought for millennia, that He came down into the middle of the struggle and took upon the nature of man Himself was laid down in a little feed trough in a little poor spot with, with, with literally strips of cloth wrapped around him, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He didn't have a little nice go-home-from-the-hospital blanket. Okay, he, he didn't have a real cool car seat to head home on the back of the donkey. He's poor. He's, he's, he's into a family where they're, they're, they're just glad that he's alive and he's made it. And, and he identified. He became everything that you've struggled with. The Bible says he was tempted in all points yet without sin. So the amazing thing is, is this God became a man. And so he's, what is he? Is he man or is he God? He's both. He's the God-man. He is, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Somebody say amen. amen. And so in his coming, 
they ask the question, how, how possibly can this Jesus or this Messiah, if he is the Messiah, and even Jesus is asking the question, trying to stir up their thinking a little bit. How many of you know any time God asks a question, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer? Many times he's asking you a question, he's trying to get you to understand the answer. It's like when God asked Abraham, okay? Uh, anytime that takes place, he's wanting to teach us something, all right? So Jesus is saying, how can this be? How can the Messiah be David's son and then yet David call him Master or Lord? Well, it's just that he was before David was created. But then he entered into humanity and became part of the lineage so that he would be the fulfillment of the one who would forever sit upon David's throne. Now that's, that, is a, that is a scandalon. That is an offense for some people until they see it from a kingdom perspective because the kingdom of God changes everything. A kingdom perspective changes our understanding of the law like we did where the love fulfills it. it. It changes my understanding of who this Jesus is. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah. He is uh, Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the one who has come to save His people from their sins. And it's, it's very popular these days on television. If you, if you get all of your understanding of prophecy and end times from television, then you would think, and it would be an incorrect assumption, to think that the, the vast majority opinion about end times would be the way maybe, um, let's see, John Hagee or uh, Grant Jeffries or Hal Lindsey or um, let's see, who wrote the Left Behind series? Tim LaHaye. Or um, let's see, who is the other one I'm trying to think of? Rexella, his wife is the singer. Jack Van Impey. Okay, all those guys that I mentioned love Jesus and I'm not throwing stones in any kind of way other than just the fact to say that when you, when you poll the body of Christ, 17% of believers believe what they teach and they make you think that's the only right way to interpret prophecy. Literally, the whole body of Christ, less than 20% of the body of Christ believes in what they teach is called a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, I don't wade off into this controversial stuff very often, but I think it's important because this scripture and understanding will set us up for when we open up Mark 13 next week. Mark 13 goes along with Luke 17 and 21, Matthew 24, where Jesus is talking about the temple being destroyed and the abomination of desolation and His return and all these kinds of things. And so we have to wrestle with some of these concepts and put it in the right context. Now the verse that I just read to you is the most quoted Old Testament verse and I believe it's important for us. The reason that, that, that you will always hear me bring what I believe is a balanced perspective on this, on the coming of the Lord, and let me, just, let me stand up right now because I want to emphasize this. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming again in a physical body. I believe He will return at an yet undisclosed date. The Bible says that the, no man knows the day nor the hour. Come on, help me say amen. That's scripture. Now, the problem that we face is that multitudes of these guys have set so many dates that have all passed and that have been incorrect that we have taken a black eye among the academic, among the intellectuals who otherwise might have been open to hear some things about the gospel and the claims that we make about the goodness of God had we not flubbed it so many times. Uh, the, I remember crossing the flyover uh, as you start to get back onto the new bridge uh, there uh, when you're coming off the 240 loop. And that whole great big huge sign was rented by someone who was a follower of Harold Camping that told us that two years ago in May that Jesus was returning and the rapture was going to take place and we would be gone and everybody else would be here in tribulation. 
Unfortunately, it didn't happen, and it was one more time. Go home and Google rapture dates, and you will see 200 or plus recorded dates of times over the last 2,000 years where people have sold everything, gone to the top of the mountain, dressed in sheets, waiting for Jesus to come, and then he didn't show. And how many times have we taken a black eye in the body of Christ because people just think we're a bunch of fruits, nuts, and flakes, a bunch of granola people? Okay? Now, let me, let me just say this again because I do not want you to go out of here misrepresenting me. I believe Jesus Christ is coming back. I just also believe the scripture says nobody has a clue when that's going to be. There's a lot of stirring right now with John Hagee and the four blood moons and all of that. And you know, it's fascinating. And yes, that astronomical event did take place at the crucifixion. But it also took place three other times in history where nothing significant happened. So 2014, 2015, the Lord may come back. And you know what? I say hasten your coming. Right now, if Jesus would come back, it would fix every problem I've got. I, I just, Lord, I wish. Lord, I long. Lord, I long for your appearing. And I think maybe there's something in that that we need to learn something about. There may be something there that we don't quite understand yet in the appearing of the Lord. And, and, and so, so what, what, what I, I want to say to you is instead of getting our, 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 our eye set on an eastern gate and our, our ear tuned to hear the trumpet of Gabriel ready to fly out of here and so many times the world can't see the gospel because every one of us have one foot on the rapture bus ready to leave and we're letting the, every rest, all the rest of the world go to hell in a handbasket. And we're not, we're not ministering to our communities. And we're, we're, not, we're not reaching out here to deal with the problems. that I am preaching. Sit down. I'm just teasing you. I'm just kidding you, okay? We're not doing what we're supposed to do. We're not being light in darkness. We're not being salt in the middle of corruption. Because of all of this, just, I'm, oh, I'm going to fly out of here any second. Now, let me just say this right now one more time. I do believe Jesus is coming back. Amen. He is coming back. But what if it's not in my lifetime? So I tell people all the time, be ready to go if he shows in the next second, but prepare as if you have another hundred years. Leave an inheritance for your grandchildren. Work hard. Cultivate your calling. Get some schooling, some education. Dream your dreams and dream them big for the kingdom of God and advance this thing for the work of the Lord and the kingdom. Come on. Let's don't be a bunch of idiotes. Greek word for idiots. How do we miss it? Come on, I grew up. Every Sunday night they would scare the fire out of folks and we'd go back to the Pentecostal altars and we'd get saved all over again because we were just sure that one time that week that we had sinned and if Jesus showed up, we were not going to go out in the rapture. We were just sliding into hell at that spot and I got saved every Sunday night so many years. <laughs> Come on, Ken, you did too. I'm telling you. And I'm thankful for my heritage. I'm not throwing off on that. But thank God I started hanging around some good Baptist brothers that taught some grace and helped me to see that I had been sealed with the hand of God and the Holy Spirit seal was on me and that, that nothing could pluck me from the hand of the one who had chosen me himself. And, and all of a sudden I began to get a little bit more confident and I started growing in my faith and realizing that I could be confident in this very thing that he which had begun a good work in me would perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't going to on a whim like some crazy maniacal father get mad at me and kick me out because I missed it one time and send me to a burning hell. The wrath of God is real. But most of the time it's been shoved down believers' throats who every Sunday were scared to death they were going to split it wide open. And we need to grow in some grace. Every Sunday I would hear 
Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back. And after a while I said, man, it's taken him a long time. <laughs> I was a kid when I said that. And do you realize that I, regardless of where that is, whether it's in a physical or a spiritual dimension, and I believe that heaven is a thin veil between us and here right now. You just don't even know it. I don't believe it's on some distant outer galaxy, another planet. I believe that literally it's within our grasp. The kingdom of God is within our reach. If we reach out in faith, we can take hold of the fruit of heaven right now standing in this place. And that's what he told us to pray, was pray that my kingdom... You know what? The problem is not going to be in heaven. Like the little lady had said in our Pentecostal prayer service, Oh, one of these days when I get to heaven, I'm just going to beat the devil all over the place. And somebody said, Sister, I don't think he's going to be there. Order is in heaven. Beauty is in heaven. Abundance is in heaven. We need some of that to come down into here, right here where we are. Help me, Holy Ghost. What's the point? The Father said to the Son, Keep your seat until I... Until, everybody say until. Until I make your enemies your footstool. It's a time word. He is not going to get up and show up until... We do what we're supposed to to advance the kingdom and see the enemies put under his feet. Don't shout me down. I know I'm preaching real good. Here we go. Let's just, let's just move on. Mark 12, verse 38. He continued teaching, watch out for the religion scholars. They love to walk around in academic gowns, preening in the radiance of public flattery, basking in prominent positions, sitting at the head table at every church function. All the time they're exploiting the weak and the helpless. The longer their prayers, the worse they get. But they'll pay for it in the end. I'm just going to say one thing and move on. Religion is full of pretense and it's empty of power. You can have all the accoutrement. You can have the robes. You can have the best pipe organ and somebody to play it. You can have a robed choir that doesn't miss a note. And there's not anything wrong with any of that. I love a little bit of the influence of a little bit of high church. A mighty fortress is our God. There's so much truth in that 500-year-old hymn, it's crazy. And sometimes we lose a connection with that in all of our new stuff. And thank goodness we went back this morning and didn't just sing the new version, Matt Redmond's version of Nothing But the Blood, but Scott led us in the old version, and I love that. What can wash away my sin? Finish it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sometimes you can't improve on the old stuff. And so... This morning, I want to just say that we don't ever want to let this thing be about religious pretense. but We want it to be about the power of God. Last thing and I'm finished. Number point four. Mark 12, sitting across from the offering box. Uh-oh. The Lord's going to touch our pocketbooks now. See, this is why I love to do expositional series because we just take it as it rolls through the Scripture and nobody thinks that I'm up trying to preach to anybody. I'm just preaching the Word, okay? Look at your neighbor and say, He preaching the Word. <laughs> Sitting across from the offering box, he was observing how the crowd tossed money in for the collection. Many of the rich were making large contributions. One poor widow came up and put in two small coins, a measly two cents. Another translation says two copper coins. Jesus called his disciples over and said, Hey, stop this, guys. The truth is that this poor widow gave more to the collection than all the others put together. All the others gave what they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. Principle is this. Read it out loud with me. Here we go. What remains after you give indicates the size of your gift. Now, you know, 
I don't think it happens frequently, but once in a while, the Holy Spirit will tap you on the shoulder and lead you to do something sacrificial, to do something extravagant, to be a waster, a prodigal, if you will, to, to be extravagant in your demonstration of how much you love God. Two or three times in my life, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, I would give everything I had, and then it would just amaze me how God, it would set into order and he would just slam me with provision that would be... I remember one time being in a service and I wrote my check, checkbook down to zero. And I was a teenager. And it wasn't a whole lot. It was $16. And honestly, within the next 48 hours, I had people that I wasn't even aware of just dump the blessing of God on me. And I had a need that I had in my life. And it wasn't some evangelist saying, if you'll give everything you got. I mean, it was, it was the leading of the Holy Spirit. Okay, And I did that. This morning, what I want to emphasize as we close is to remind you that it's not about the comma and its placement and all the zeros that you write on your check that makes it a big check. It has to do with what you're giving out of your heart. It has to do with what you have left over with whether or not it's extravagant. Because if you have a million dollars and you write a check for 100000 man, we'd shout and just say, praise God. But really, that's a tenth. That's a tithe. Really, that's what we owe God. Okay? And so... It's not as big a deal as sometimes we want to make out of it because it's a one and a zero and a zero and a common and a zero and a zero and a dot and two more zeros and you're thinking, oh my gosh, but this person is a millionaire already. So Jesus looks and he says, I'm not impressed when you give out of your abundance and you're never going to miss it. He said, I'm impressed when somebody can obey me and trust and they can give their whole heart. They can give everything they have. Jesus stopped the whole crowd and he said, you know, a lot of folks have given a lot of money today, but this woman has given everything. She's given more than any of them because she gave everything she had. And so in, in, in my closing, as I share this with you today, is, is not to get anybody to give any bigger than the offering, because I believe only the Holy Spirit can prompt you to do that. But it's to say, come to the same place the widow did, and to say, God, all to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to Thee. I will ever love and trust you. It's, he says, I surrender all. It's one of the great old hymns of the church.